You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. Plenty packed in today's show. We'll be talking about England's squad announcement for their tour to South Africa later this month, the IPL, the Women's T20 Challenge, the WBBL, Babarazam and much more. I'm Yaz Rana and today I'm joined by the Wisden Cricket Monthly staff writer, Jim Wallace, Wisden.com features editor, Tara Hashim and the magazine editor of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon. I'll refrain from mentioning the US election as much as possible today. It's completely ruined my sleep cycle this week, but I'll get one mention out of the way right at the top. There was a very funny tweet from Sky News' Mark Austin yesterday that read, never again can Americans mock cricket because it goes on for days with no clear winner. And I think it's fair to say that tweet had cut through. Talking of cut, talking of cut through, Yaz, I got a couple of uh, messages from friends congratulating me on, on that. Uh, tweet that we did I said first of all it wasn't our funny thing that we said in the first place and also I don't go anywhere near our social media accounts but but anyway you're absolutely right cut through to at least two of my friends yeah I I got a message um somebody saying that that was really funny and I had the same response it wasn't our joke all the best jokes are stolen also I saw Yaz you had posted something uh did you post Trump declaring Pennsylvania or someone with the image of Shane Watson doing a a tea review I thought that was quite good was that you Yeah that was me uh, we'll get on to Shane Watson later in the show Yeah that's a really topical tweet nice You're getting good at this luck <laughs> Anyway England have announced their squad for their upcoming tour to South Africa um, the main headlines, I guess, are Joffrey Archer, Sam Curran and Ben Stokes have been rested for the ODI series. Liam Livingston and Lewis Gregory, both uncapped in the ODI format, are in the ODI squad, as is Reese Topley, who finds a spot in both squads. Ollie Stone is back in the ODI squad. And the reserves for both squads are Jake Ball, who is rewarded for a fine T20 Blast campaign, Tom Banton and Tom Helm of Middlesex. Um, Taha, what's your main takeaway from that squad announcement, if you, if you have any? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing... Um, nothing extraordinary that really stands out. There's not a sort of rogue pick in there. Um, I thought it was just quite interesting to see Tom Banton uh, down down as a reserve. Um, I feel like he's had a really tough time of it. Like he's it's kind of, it's kind of hard not to feel for him a bit. He's been carrying around the drinks in the IPL. Uh, didn't have a great time of it in the two games he played. Um, obviously got some undeserved stick for actually going to the tournament. Now he's going to be carrying the drinks in South Africa on the sidelines. Um, and then he's off to the big bash. Like he is going to be absolutely knackered um, come the come the end of the year um, without having not actually played much cricket. Um, 
Also quite interesting to see Jake Ball back in there um, after a couple of years. Um, he'd sort of really fallen off the radar. Uh, wasn't having a great time of it at Knott's, um, but has had a really good T20 blast. Um, so that's that's kind of it. There's no sort of kind of standout pick there. It's good, it's good to see Reese Topley in there because he's, he's obviously bowled quite well for Surrey, um, played that one game against Ireland where he looked all right. Um, and he's just a pretty good bowler who's, <laughs> you know, not had the best of luck, so... I mean that's that's really about it, really. Yeah, Topley was the name that that jumped out for me as well. I mean, he's still only twenty six, which is extraordinary given around how long he's been around for. But um, it's, it's a great story that he's managed to come back. He, I mean, he had horrific injuries, lost his contract, was training on his own, multiple operations. It's actually a really good couple of pieces that Rob Johnston of Crickbuzz did with him uh, a few years ago when Topley didn't have a contract, and he and he took the time to meet up with Topley and to hear about his progress. And it's a really good example of the kind of the, the, the rubbish side of cricket that we don't often see. Uh, and the great thing with Topley is it's come full circle and, and, and now he's back in the England setup, which he obviously was a few years ago. Um, he's on a, only a white ball contract to Surrey, which is probably wise given his injury problems. Had a brilliant blast, loads of wickets. I think he was pretty much the most economical scene bowler in the competition. Uh, and he's got his chance, that, that left armour, obviously particularly useful in T20 cricket. And I think David Willey was unavailable for selection. So... Topley gets his chance in in both formats. Mm. And and Jim, there's no there's no backup spinner to Adil Rashid in the in both squads, but I think more interesting in the T Twenty squad. Are you surprised by that? I know Moeen Ali is there, but he had an up and down white ball summer and isn't quite the same wicket taking threat as Rashid. Do you think England should have at least looked to someone else in the uh, event of an injury to Adil Rashid? That is an area where they could um, come up short. I mean, they're probably relying on on getting bits and pieces overs from uh, the likes of Moeen Ali and, and who else Who else turns their arm over? I'm just think, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. You put me on the spot. Well, Joe Root in the 50-over side. Liam Livingston is in the 50-over uh, squad as well. Are they, are they possibly thinking that the wickets might not be that conducive to spin and they'll just try and get through by scratching through that way? Seems a bit of a risk, but I don't know. Have South Africa got more in their ranks? I just think that... Uh, it, obviously, in a first choice team, Adi Rashid plays every time, but it's more in the event England goes to a T Twenty World Cup and Adi Rashid picks up an injury. I can't think of a of a of a, a decent T Twenty side ever really that or so sorry in the last few years that doesn't have a uh, excellent wrist spinner. Mm. Um, and England do have options there. They, Matt Matt Parkinson has played a little bit for England, done quite well. Um, Mason Crane, who played three years ago, had a really good summer actually. I I thought there was a chance that he'd go it come come back into the fold, but I think yeah, that is a real risk. If Adam Rashid picks up an injury, I don't know how England cover that. I think they're nervous of the of the the other. So Rashid, you know, he he has control as a leg spinner to an extent, whereas the other two, they've they've done reasonably well when they play, but they don't have they don't offer that same amount of control as a leg spinner or as a wrist spinner. Sorry, so uh, the. Finger spinning, just you know, trying to sneak through a few overs with a tweaker becomes a more appetising prospect. And they might have taken Liam Dawson, possibly, who wasn't available through injury. Uh, and when I listened in on that, the press conference with Ed Smith after that squad announcement, he said the door was still very much open for for Dawson and Joe Denley as well uh, as two players. I think that they trust. They don't necessarily feel like they need to see much more of them. But he said if, if there was an opportunity or a chance came up and there was a big tournament around the corner, they wouldn't think twice about putting them in for that. Um, and I think 
that's probably why they've gone down this route. But it does seem, I agree, I think it's strange not to have a young spinner there um, to at least potentially get a crack, especially if England have already won a series and you've got a dead rubber. It seems like a good opportunity with, with big tournaments around the corner to, to get a bit of big match experience. I find that quite interesting with Liam Dawson in particular because he's not actually played much cricket for England, which <laughs> you kind of just assume that he's played 20, 30 ODIs maybe, but what's it, three? Three ODIs, I think? Might be wrong. Created some impression in those very few opportunities, though, that England basically trust him enough to not see him for four years, but they trust yeah. him enough to still pick him for the World Cup when it eventually comes round. He must be great in the changing room, I think, is, is the phrase, yeah. Um, Joe, you mentioned that there was no place for Joe Denley in the squad. Uh, now, that might not come as much of a surprise, but Denley was involved with a lot of the white ball action in the summer. Uh, you spoke to him before the squad announcement. Did you get the sense that he was someone who was aware that his international career might be coming to an end and his chances minimising? Not necessarily. I think he's not naive. He knows his age. He's 34 now, counts against him. Um, but he said he absolutely hasn't written off test cricket. He, again, appreciates that Zach Crawley has certainly nailed down that spot. But I think he, he's still hopeful of a squad place with lots of te- test cricket ahead. He said the Ashes are still a big target for him. I think one day cricket, I think he was more hopeful. He'd already lost his white ball contract, which is obviously a, was an ominous sign but I think given the lack of spin options I, I think he still would have fancied his chances as, as going as a kind of backup batsman who's also useful for a few overs uh, and it's worth remembering I mean it feels a very long time ago now but his last two ODIs were in South Africa earlier this year and he scored 87 and 66 so whilst there'll be a lot of people out there who say god Denny should never have been near the one day side in the first place well when he's been in it he's actually done okay uh, and it's probably age counting against him here. They've gone for Liam Livingston, who I think is 27. Um, he's a more dynamic batsman, um, which is probably what they want in that role. Um, but I still, I still, I, I, I believe Ed Smith when he says the door isn't closed on Denley, just because I know how much England think of him. And if there is a spot that needs filling, he won't be too far from the top of the queue. I can't believe that South Africa series was this year. I know it's ridiculous. I have to I have to check it literally every single time I refer to it because I can't believe it was this year. Yeah, that that Cape Town Test where England took three late wickets that was that was in twenty twenty. I remember watching that in the office. Those are the yeah, days. Ah, oh, the office. <laughs> well, well, here is a small snippet uh, from that conversation between Joe and Joe Denley. Um, Joe's full feature on Denley will be going up on Wisdom dot com later this week. Do you feel like you're still in the mix for these winter squads all being well and, and the tours going ahead? Uh, I'd like to think so, yeah. Look, I've, I've now been there and I know there's a couple of areas, what areas that I need to work on within my game. And um, I also understand that there's a lot of, of good young players around that um, have been pushing their case throughout the summer, um, whether it be playing with their counties or opportunities that they've got with England Lions or... Um, you know opportunities in warm-up games with England um, there's some good young players around um, so yeah look, it's, it's going to be tough to, to force my way back into the side and you know they might go with a bit of um, you know, a younger generation if you like yeah. um, although I hope that's you know not the case I'm still consider myself to be you know very fit and um, like I say that ambition's still there so yeah, I know I'm quite realistic as well. It's going to be tough, but um, there's a lot of cricket to be played, um, certainly before that Ashes series. I know there's uh, India and Sri Lanka tour, Test tour in the new year. 
um, which hopefully I can be a part of. I know they've spoken about squads potentially being a bit uh, larger um, yeah. in terms of being in players coming in and out of the bubble and stuff like that. So, so yeah, I still consider myself certainly to be um, in the running for, for uh, a test squad spot. Um, and the chats I've had with Ed and, and, and Chris Silverwood and Ruti, um, when I lost my, my place, was the door was, certainly wasn't shut. So, yeah, that gives me a bit of confidence as well. If you do get another crack at it, is, is there anything um, you would do differently next time? I mean, obviously, it's a given you'd want that, that big score, but is there anything in terms of yeah. your your approach that you'd, you'd do differently? Yeah, I think, um, I think I found myself, uh, certainly in the test I played, I felt really comfortable at the crease um, and, and batted for, for long periods of time um, without really scoring um, at a good rate. And I think that's one area that I, I need to try and look at is, is as much as being you know solid and, and batting time, it's about accumulating runs and, and being tougher to bowl at in, in that area. Um, trying to have more scoring options, working the singles, working twos uh, and stuff like that. And, um, you know the best players do that and you know, Ruti is one of the best at that you'll, mm. you'll look up at the scoreboard and he'll be 20 off 20 balls and you know whereas I found myself 20 off 60 70 balls um, so yeah I think just working on um, becoming harder to bowl at in, in that regard um, and having more scoring options certainly um, I suppose being a bit more positive and in everything I'm doing there, um, and it, and with spin as well, and you know, I, I found myself uh, getting through really tricky periods against high quality bowling and, and seeing off the new ball, and then when that spin bowler comes on, is is really taking the chance to to, to up the scoring rate and, and be positive against spin, um, which is something I don't think I did particularly well um, in the test matches that I played. So um, there are a couple of areas that I, I would like to to try and improve on um, going forward. That story started doing the rounds. I think I first heard Kevin Peterson say it during the South Africa tour that you were kind of being specifically asked to bat for 100 balls by the team management, uh, that that was kind of your primary goal. Is is there any truth in that? No, no. No, they were very clear um, on scoring heavily first innings uh, and they weren't too worried about how we did it. And no, at no stage I was told that I had to face 100 balls. Um, you know, with batsman at the end of the day you just go out and score runs it doesn't matter how you do it and um, it may have looked like that uh, some some innings that I played where I got a bit bogged down and um, was just looking to bat time um, but no I wasn't ever told just to, to go out and, and make sure I face 100 balls Is it frustrating when you see those you know how rumours spread on social media it's kind of like a school playground is it frustrating to see that when you think that's just not even the case? Uh, yeah, well, look, so social media can be frustrating full stop. There's there's a lot of things that go around that aren't necessarily true, and um, I suppose that's one of the, the challenges of playing at the top level um, is is what's written in the media, social media and stuff like that. You're going to get um, a lot of negative, um, I suppose, stories floating around, and um, you, have to, you have to, I suppose, deal with those, uh, and that's part and parcel of it. I think Zach Crawley's probably a sensible lad. He hasn't got Instagram or Twitter or anything like that, so he, he's, um, he doesn't have to read it all. And I do actually find myself coming off social media quite a bit when I'm when I'm involved with England, just to, to try and stay clear of it, really, and, and deal with it that way. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you always seem to take these things in your stride and be very laid back about it, but I did wonder after so many years on the county circuit where you're kind of universally loved by Kent fans, is it an unsettling experience to find yourself under such scrutiny? Because you kind of inadvertently became quite a divisive figure in that lots of people really appreciated the job you were doing. Other people yeah. didn't think you were quite cut out for it. Is that a quite, Can that be an unsettling experience? Uh, yeah, it was. Certainly it can. Um... I think I'm I'm a lot better equipped to deal with it. I think that is something certainly I I struggled with early on in my career when I first played for England um, when I was in my early twenties, um, and I knew sort of going back into the setup I was going to be there were going to be people that weren't my biggest fans. And um, but yeah, it's it's I suppose you know I can I can say that um, yeah I, can, I deal with it now quite easily and sort of part and parcel of it. But of course I think it does have an effect and. Um, when you when you read it, uh, and it becomes more often, you know, you're reading it in press and on social media, it can have an effect. And yeah, I think it's um, yeah, it's something we, we just have to deal with. Um, Do you have concerns for some of your younger teammates? I mean, Joffre spoke about it in the summer that that it was it was actually having quite an effect on him. I don't know what the the answer is really, but do you, do you have concerns for for some of those younger players who haven't haven't got the experience that you have to to lean on? Uh, yeah, uh, do actually. Um, yeah, that's something I've uh, I have thought about. Is uh, you know these young guys that are starting out their career, their international careers, or even county careers, and you know some of the stuff that you get on on social media is is um, you know quite disgusting, really. Something. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's. I suppose it's your choice but do you choose to have those, those platforms and you know a lot of it is positive and, and it's great for these guys um, to share their, their stories of, of what they're up to and um, you know how things are going but I suppose at the same time there's always going to be that negative side of it and um, there are you know we, we are very lucky to have the su- support networks that, that travel around with us for the England side and um quite an open group as well and, and you know there's always people to, to talk about if you are struggling with, with those issues but but yeah I think um, certainly people that are quite negative you know there's past players I know that use Twitter to um, there's a few past players that I know that aren't my biggest fans that um, quite often put it on their, their Twitter accounts and stuff like that mm. disappointing to see you know when, when they played uh, social media wasn't so big so they didn't really have to deal with it so you know, I would question whether they, they're actually thinking about the effect that all these uh, tweets and stuff that they put out um, how far that travels um, that is one question that maybe they could think about Moving on to the IPL there was a brilliant end to the group stages with six of the eight teams in contention for a playoff spot going into that final weekend Sunrise's Hyderabad eventually nab that final spot with a win over league leaders Mumbai Indians who, who were resting a few players um, so guys bearing in mind that this show will be going out after the first qualifier for the final between Mumbai and Delhi um, I'll be asking you a little bit about how you think the IPL will go but first off Joe we discussed on our IPL preview video about how the move from Trevor Bayliss and David Warner to drop Johnny Bairstow has proved pivotal for Sunrisers. Absolutely has. First of all, I should say for regular listeners, uh, I have got my TVs fixed, so I'm not winging it. I have actually watched some of what I'm talking about here. Um, but yeah, with the Sunrisers, who oddly kind of go into the uh, playoff stages as as the form team, uh, 
and that move to drop Bairstow, which seemed a bit controversial because he hadn't had a bad IPO, hadn't been brilliant, but hadn't been bad, to bring in Holder in that middle order, bolster their bowling options, and then put uh, Riddham and Saha up as an opener has absolutely paid off in every single way that it could have done, and it's made them look a much more uh, rounded outfit. Um, they were way too top-heavy previously. Uh, and with Rashi Khan, who is basically unhittable uh, and taking wickets, they suddenly look like a, a really well-balanced side that could potentially go all the way. They've obviously got to do it the hard way. They've got to win three matches to, to get there. Um, but I think I wouldn't be at all surprised if we have a Mumbai Indians Sunrisers final come the end of it. They made short work of um, so Kolkata. I, I had Kolkata in a sweepstake. And they they set uh, 150 and and they made short work of that the other day. So uh, that Mumbai had rested um, Bumrah and a few others as well, but Trent Bolt as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, they they look like they're hitting form just at the right time. And and also RCB and Delhi Capitals, the teams that finished second and third, uh, are woefully out of form. They both kind of crawled to the playoffs, got to the playoffs on the back of brilliant early season form. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Sunrisers got to the final. Isn't that the quirk of the IPL, the fact it goes on so long that teams can sort of get into form and out of form because it goes on for, you know, half a year or something that, you know, they, they were in form and now they've sort of played. It's almost like when you're batting, you, you start off in good nick and you just sort of scratch around for so long that you end up playing yourself out of form. So, yeah, it's, uh, what are we going to do when the IPL finishes? Well, that's, that's, yeah. what, that's why I was really sort of fascinated by the whole Kings Eleven story, you know, one win from seven and then they win five on the bounce. And I'm like, OK, this could they could actually do this now because they've, you know, they've 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 sorted out their team. Everything's going well. Um, but then they sort of bottled it at the end. Um, but it was just I, I sort of um, I had a look at the, 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 the IPL league table after it all finished. I was just sort of in shock uh, in a way to see Rajasthan Royals right at the bottom because They'd been kind of in with a shout right till the end. Um, Joffre was amazing, but um, and then CSK had somehow climbed from climbed away from bottom. So it's been quite fascinating to see that and what the points difference is. Well, Sunrisers finished on fourteen, right? Uh, sorry, KKR finished on fourteen with Sunrisers, um, and yet they don't make it. And then the bottom two teams have twelve points. So it's been a pretty fascinating tournament. Joe, did, were you saying you've put a flutter on? Well, I put £3, all of £3 on Rajasthan Royals um, about 12 hours before they got knocked out of the competition. Uh, but I thought if they could sneak through, all they had to do was beat Kolkata Knight Riders and Hopeman by Indians beat Sunrisers and then they'd have been there. And they just have so many good players. I thought they could have gone on a, a three-game streak in the, in the eliminator rounds to, uh, to do it. But obviously... Not this year. Their bowling was just without Archer was just yeah. nowhere near good enough. Yaz, you, you put a stat up there of uh, comparing the rest of the Rajasthan attack to Archer, uh, which didn't take a genius to work out why they hadn't qualified. So I think it was specifically the pace attack with right. Archer versus the rest of the pace attack. I don't have it in front of me, but from memory, it was Archer went at less than seven. The rest of the pace bowlers went at more than ten. I think the rest of the pace attack had a combined average of about fifty. Archers was under 20. But Jim, Mumbai have just been the best team by quite a long way. Do you do you see them as the favourite still? Uh, I do. I think they're going to do I think they've just... They've been in form the entire time. They've sort of... They seem a settled side. And also, again, going back to my, my own stupid little life, my older brother has them in, in the sweepstake and he's a jammy little so-and-so, so I'm pretty certain that they will... Uh, they'll take the crown. 
Yeah, it's just that they're, um, the, the, the number of brilliant domestic players they have at their disposal, a lot of whom haven't actually played for India, like Rahul Chaha, yeah. uh, Suryakarma, Yadav, Kunal Pandya, Ishan Kishan looks brilliant. Uh, yeah. uh, Wisden India's Adia Sharma said about a year ago that he rated Kishan at a similar level to Pant, and they're the same age. I remember that, like, kind of scoffing at him, thinking that was ridiculous, but... Um, Kishan has been absolutely brilliant. It shows how a team can be formed from, you know, if you look at the lineups, then you wouldn't pick them as the sort of gun lineup. You'd perhaps go for someone like Rajasthan or, or these these teams that have sort of the bigger names. But although they do have a couple of big names, obviously they they perform as a team a bit more than some of the others. They sort of less rely on their their big star signings. I think at this point in the tournament, you, you just look at the, the crucial positions like, like the finisher and you would back Pollard to get them over the line more often than not. And Mumbai Indians have won a couple of absolute squeakers over the last few years. Um, and with Bumrah and Bolt up top, I think have taken what more than 40 wickets between them in, in the tournament. Uh, they are going to be tough to beat, unless they've already been beaten by Delhi Capitals, in which case they're actually quite easy to beat. So, related to the IPL, uh, Shane Watson has announced his retirement from the professional game this week. In England, where we didn't really take notice of white ball cricket until 2015, Watson was a bit of a joke figure sometimes. Like, he was known for his LBW troubles and erratic use of DRS. Um, but in all seriousness, he's a genuine limited overs legend. Well, I think he's one of the most fascinating cricketers of this century, really. I, I don't think that's at all an exaggeration. Um, at test level, his record is by no means terrible, but he never really cracked it. Um, there was sort of this air of desperation to succeed there whenever he was at the crease. I'll never sort of, I'll never forget his celebration against England when he hit a ton at Perth uh, in that five 0 whitewash, sort of arms aloft, puff of the cheeks. So almost a sense of relief over over actual joy. Um, but his his body seemed to to, to let him down there. Um, but in in white ball. Cricket, he had sort of more of a confident swagger, total colossus. Um, you know, two World Cup medals, um, twice man of the match in the Champions Trophy finals. Absolutely bossed the IPL, won franchise leagues, left, right, and centre. Um, I can't remember, it's turned himself into a T20 great. Um, and so it's been a really extraordinary career, really. He, you know, I get that he's almost a bit of a figure of fun with the whole review thing and and that and that's almost what will be sort of the enduring image of his test career is, is making the tea sign with his bat um but he was, he was so much more than that um and you know um i think you guys spoke on the podcast a few weeks ago about australia's you know search for a great all-rounder they've, they've searched for a great all-rounder for years you know shane watson was in one ways not that but also that you know he did he did kind of crack it um, and it's had a pretty extraordinary career that most cricketers would, you know, kill for. Joe, um, I, I watched the Watson's retirement video. We kind of talked to camera about his career and about the decision. And one thing that he referenced was how amazed that he was in himself that he got to 39 still playing elite level cricket, despite all the struggles he had with his body. Um, how, how, how do you think we should remember Watson's Career. The longevity is amazing. In some ways, it's his greatest achievement, given given the uh, troubles he did have. Um, I think he should be remembered as an absolutely top class one day batsman, or sorry, white ball batsman. 
I think the all-rounder thing has kind of muddied the waters. I don't think he was ever going to be a genuinely brilliant all-rounder. His bowling was never quite good enough, partly because his body didn't allow him to be. And, and it's almost been a rod for his own back in that he's been judged against that all-rounder benchmark. And, and that's just not really what he's been for the vast majority of his career. Um, he's also an interesting character because I interviewed him quite a few years ago at the GM factory when one of the Ashes tour, tours over here. Uh, and he was really lovely, like a really, really nice man. And that didn't shock me hugely. I'd heard he was a nice man, but he didn't kind of have a like an aura about him in, in some ways. And the way that if you meet Ben Stokes, who's also a nice man, it is like he just dominates the room. And even though Watson's a big man, it, was, it wasn't like that at all. He was quite soft-spoken and, and... There's a melancholiness to, to, to Watson, I've always thought. He's sort of like a big, sad scarecrow, like lumbering in and, and his body always sort of seeming like it might give out on him. And that's the thing with the, with the all-rounder thing. He never... He didn't look... He didn't look like he took any pleasure in bowling whatsoever. He was sort of creaking to the crease and, and that even when he was a younger man. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting you say about him not having an... Or, or being really nice because wasn't he known for being... Didn't he have some uh, beef with... Uh, Australian management with the homework thing and also with Michael Clark over the years they sort of didn't see eye to eye so there were fallouts I think probably I mean he's had a long career those were in his younger days I'm sure he's mellowed a lot as as, as most players do as, as Stokes has done already um, but I think Tyler's right in when he says that England fans have probably got a warped view of how good he is because we just think of him being out LBW for 30 odd uh, in a Ashes test match but obviously his career suggests, and it is certainly the case, that he was a much, much better player than that. There's been a bit of international cricket this week. Pakistan and Zimbabwe contested a three-match ODI series. It's part of the new Cricket World Cup Super League, where every match counts towards World Cup qualification in 2023. It was a great series, actually. So Pakistan survived the scare in the first ODI, where a Brendan Taylor 100 from Zimbabwe took them close to chasing 280. The second one was more straightforward, as Pakistan chased down 207 with... 15 overs to spare but the third one was an absolute classic going to a super over um so pakistan was struggling in pursuit of 279 but a brilliant babrizam hundred and an enterprising half century odd from wahab riaz down the order kept the minute but then came northamptonshire's blessing musrabani musrabani took four late wickets to finish with a fifer and leave pakistan needing 13 off the last over with just one wicket in hand Pakistan's numbers 10 and 11, Mohammed Musa and Mohammed Hussain, who had early taken a fifer, scrambled eight from the first five balls in the over, which left them needing five off the last ball. Musa nails one straight to short cover, who lets it go straight through him, and it races away to the fence. And then we go to a super over, uh, just a second super over in the history of ODI cricket. No prize for guessing what was the first one. Um, and then Musrabani takes two wickets and concedes just two runs from the Pakistan super over where Pakistan, interestingly, sent out Iftikhar Ahmed and Kushtil Shah, who's on debut. That didn't really work. Um, then Zimbabwe chased that, chased three with a couple of balls of spare. Um, so, yeah, A, a really good series. All of it was streamed on YouTube, uh, so very easy to watch if you're in the UK. Um, annoyingly, there were adverts mid-over, which is not a good thing when it's a super-over. Uh, that, that um, but a brilliant game of cricket and a, and a, and a brilliant series as well um, but anyway related to Pakistan cricket Saha your, your street cred in your family WhatsApp group is through the roof right now do you want to explain why oh well this is for the 
Uh, next issue of Wizard Creek Monthly, I interviewed uh, interviewed Cho Bacta today, um, um, which was quite surreal. Uh, someone who I sort of watched growing up, um, fast bowler of all time. Um, and, yeah, it was just a bit of a, a sort of. It's one of the experiences where you kind of have to remind yourself to to keep it professional and not be like, oh yeah, I've, I've watched it all my life. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Do you have an aura to her? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, he certainly does. Um, so that was yeah, that was quite 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 an experience. Um, I don't want to give too much away about the interview, um, but some some great bits on just how much how painful it was bowling fast. He <laughs> um, sort of reeled off the exact number of injections he had over his career. Um, and so, yeah, I, yeah, I, w- I won't, I won't delve into it too much, but, um, yeah, the family WhatsApp group is, uh, to, is popping. Well, anyway, we can look forward to that in the next issue of Wisdom Cricket Monthly. Um, yesterday, the women's T20 challenge got underway in the UAE. We're two games in and they've been very interesting for different reasons. The first one was an absolute thriller. It went down to the penultimate ball with South Africa's Sune Luce hitting a fine 37 not out of 21 balls to see her side over the line. Uh, the very next day, Velocity, the, the side who won the first game, were then bundled out for just 47 against the Trailblazers, with Sophie Eccleston running through their top order, taking just four for eight, which is pretty handy. Um, we've talked about it briefly on the show before, but I think it's a real shame that the tournament is so short. I mean, like one freak innings like that represents a considerable chunk of the tournament, and players have had to, you know, go, go to bubbles, etc., uh, for, for very little cricket. And I kind of think that there are so many IPL game days with j- just one game. Um, you could so easily pack in more double headers of women's games, potentially earlier in the day at another venue or the same venue. I don't know what anyone else thinks about that. The, a full women's IPL is just a matter of time. It's inevitable. Um, but I w- would have thought it would have arrived by now. And I've been told for the last couple of years by various people within the game that, oh, it's just about to happen. And, and it hasn't happened for whatever reason, whether that's the desire to support women's cricket in India isn't quite there. I mean, it's improved massively, but it's still obviously lagging way, way behind the men's. Um, so it, it, it absolutely needs to be bigger than it, than it is. Um, th- there's always that debate whether tagging women's cricket onto the end of men's is, is a good thing to do. Women's cricket in general has kind of moved beyond that. But then maybe the IPL is a different case. Maybe that is the best way to promote it initially and then you build up that popularity and then it can stand in its own right. Um, but I think the pandemic obviously again won't have helped as it hasn't helped anything, but it's probably still not well, probably held back the women's IPL for at least another year, um, which is a shame, but it will, it will arrive and it will be great. So yeah. sure, isn't it? It's, it's only, uh, they're playing three games each in a week and you have to do a full quarantine. So thinking, is it, uh, Danny Wyatt's the other, so Sophie Eccleston's doing really well. Danny Wyatt, I think has batted twice got single digit scores but probably had to do a full full uh, couple of weeks of quarantine it just seems like ridiculously short for the amount of sort of uh, pain that you have to go through to to play in it um, I don't know why that is especially when we've just talked about how <laughs> the men's IPL has dragged on quite a bit as well yeah mm. yeah they need the again yeah it's a tricky one where you don't want to you don't want to make it seem like uh, it's an afterthought but you would have thought that if they're going to put it on, it would at least be longer than it has been. The WBBL is underway. We'll go into a bit more depth 
on it next week. Um, England's Heather Knight is going very well at the moment. But given that the next magazine is a pace special, I thought it was worth talking about one player who's caught the eye so far. So young Darcy Brown, who's sharing new ball duties with Megan Shute, is genuinely very quick. Uh, she bowled a spell the other day. She's only 17. She bowled a spell the other day uh, that uh, didn't quite hit 80 miles per hour, but was very close on a few occasions. Um, Joe, you've seen her bowl a little bit uh, via some YouTube highlights. You've been, you've been impressed? Yeah, I saw a couple of clips. She was swinging it as well. Um, looks like Australia might have found another one, um, which is obviously not good news from an England sports point of view, but it's fantastic news for women's cricket, which has uh, traditionally lacked genuine pace. Uh, often the spinners do such a fantastic job, it's tempting just to stick with that kind of more conservative option. But there is a sign as, as the women's game becomes more dynamic, more aggressive, that fast bowlers obviously are, are perfectly in keeping with that and that there's a desire to get more quicks into into the teams. Um, I think because, well, first of all, obviously, A, because they're effective uh, and that they're effective in all cricket and that shouldn't be any different in women's cricket. And B, but there is also the, the spectacle to think of as well. And people love watching fast bowling. People love watching a variety of bowling and, and women's cricket has sometimes lacked that. So it's really good that, that Australia have got a couple coming through. We've got one over here in England as well, Izzy Wong, who's only 18 years old. I spoke to this morning for, for the magazine that you're, you're talking about. Um, she's been clocked at, uh, I think, 72 miles an hour, but is only 18 and hasn't had a full summer of cricket yet, really. So she is being talked about as, as a potential kind of 80 mile an hour um, bowler uh, and has already been training with England full side. And I think come 2022, when England got a World Cup and a T20 World Cup and a Commonwealth Games, uh, all being well, Izzy Wong will be massively part of those squads and, and, and is the kind of successor to Catherine Brunt. Mm, no pressure. Um <laughs> We, we started the pod with a tweet and we're going to end the pod with a tweet too. So uh, there is a Twitter account called Fesshole, which allows Twitter users to post anonymous confessions to the account's 91,000 plus audience. Uh, and that account had a message from someone claiming to be a former England cricketer. So we're going to do a bit of detective work to try and work out who this might be. The tweet read... I'm a retired professional cricketer who managed to play a handful of times for England. Although I did my best for them, it was just a job for me. I support another national team quite fervently and secretly always want England to lose. Um, Jim, any guesses for who you reckon that might be? A lot of Twitter users instantly presumed it must be someone not born in the UK, which I'm not, I'm not sure about. No, I'd, I'd, I didn't go down that route. I went old school, as is often the case with me. I thought it might be Roger Prido. Uh, <laughs> just because uh, he sounds a bit French, and also I think he, I, did, I think he emigrated to South Africa. So, uh, and, th- and he only played a handful of tests. Uh, another one that st- came to me was Tim Munton, only played a couple of tests. Uh, but yeah, I just, I just like to think of the sort of. Um, On what basis have you gone with Tim Munton? Just, you know, I, I like the thought of him sort of downloading Twitter during lockdown two and being like, oh, I'll just give this a go and finding this a thing and then just sort of bearing his soul on Fesshole, if that's... Is it called Fesshole? Sounds a bit awful, but, uh, uh, yeah. Um, I didn't... I, I saw a few people doing, uh, you know, it was Ed Smith and things like that. I think it... I don't know. I like to think it's one of those old geezers who's um, come to terms with his place in, in English cricket history. Yeah, so I, I try to do some genuine detective work here. Uh, I, I was hoping that uh, there'd be a prominent 
former England cricketer who follows the account and I couldn't find any. The only cricketer I found, actually, no, that's not true. There were two cricketers I found who follow this account. One of them was Oliver Hannon Dolby, who has not yet played for England, so it's not him. The other one was Graham Swan, who I, who I really don't think it is. Um, I don't think Graham Swan would refer to his career as having just managed to have played a few games or a handful of games uh, for England. A lot of people thought it was Nick Compton. And, then, and again, for the same reason, I don't think it's Nick Compton. I don't think Nick Compton uh, would, would refer to his career in that way. And I also don't think it was ever just a job for Nick Compton. Um, Joe Taha, any, any other guesses? One, one that came to mind was Darren Pattinson. Um, but oh, yeah. handful, he only played the once, didn't he? So I think that's probably not right. Um, and then we were discussing, I mean, Robert Croft is, was, has been mentioned by a few people on Twitter. He's been outed by a few people, hasn't he? As, as the, as it, the... it depends on, I mean, what's a handful? Robert Croft played, for me, played more than a handful of games. Yeah. Could be false modesty? Is what, sorry, false modesty? Yeah, yeah, possibly. Taha's very quiet, he's not giving it any thought it, at it's all. It's me. <laughs> anyway if you've got any guesses uh for who you think that might be or any comments about anything else in the show feel free to get in touch with any of us on on twitter can we, can we do a twitter poll yaz uh, Moncton versus prido and see see what the public think i think that's that's really who it's down between just those two or we're gonna open up i think, I think just i think it's nailed on those two yeah it's the great next race after trump versus biden absolutely absolutely um, anyway, thanks to our Joe and Jim. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. Thanks for listening, folks. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend? And if you're feeling especially kind, why not leave a complimentary review on the podcast app? Cheers. Podcast Network. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20.